It has been unequivocally established that we are living through a climate emergency. The fires in Australia have certainly left me with an uncomfortable feeling of living through an apocalypse. And I'm actually living in the absolute opposite part of the world. Last year in 2019, the conversation certainly shifted in the sense that people, youth especially, started taking to the streets to demand answers from their governments. While the conversation may no longer be about the acceptance or denial of climate change, it certainly does feel like a push and pull between the youth and folks in general and energy companies and the government greenwashing their way through to maintain it, maintain status quo. So in episode 19 of The Nth Dimension, a podcast where we talk about the systemic causes of social, political, and economic issues, I have with me Keith Brooks, Program Director at Environmental Defense Canada, to cut through all the carbon dioxide and have some real climate change talk. So Keith, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's just start with your thoughts on what I just said about um, companies and governments, energy companies and governments, um, trying to greenwash their way through maintaining status quo. Are they trying to have their cake and eat it too? But they are, and I think the, that's one of the prevailing narratives in Canada that we're trying to push back against on this idea that we can have it both ways, that we can have our cake and eat it too. Uh, we see from the federal government, you know, a commitment to, you know, buy new pipelines. Uh, there's discussion about are they going to approve this new tech oil sands mine, the biggest mine ever. Uh, they're approving new LNG facilities in, in, in BC. So we're expanding fossil fuel production, expand, building new fossil fuel infrastructure, while at the same time claiming that we really want to get serious about climate change and we're going to go to net zero emissions by 2050. And these are two irreconcilable things. Uh, and yeah, we, we're not having an honest discussion about how we can't actually do both at once. It does seem logical and intuitive to assume that if we cut back on fossil fuel subsidies and the supply of fossil fuels, then that is the sure shot way to um, managing and what I would what I assume to be an already out of control um, emergency. We'll, we should be cutting back on fossil fuel subsidies. Absolutely. Uh, the government of Canada continues to fund the production uh, and discovery of new fossil fuel projects. Uh, they fund it directly through through tax cuts. Then there's you know things like actually buying the Trans Mountain Pipeline, for example, is a is a direct subsidy. Uh, and there's other subsidies too that come through Export Development Canada. So this is uh, an agency of the government of Canada that's trying to find business for Canadian businesses overseas. So we're out you know selling our oil sands to other countries, selling our LNG to other countries, spending a lot of Canadian dollars to try to sell Canadian resources abroad. We should be stopping to do that. Definitely, that's one thing we could do. But uh, and we can stop approving new projects. Uh, that's another thing that the federal government can do. We have a new environmental review process that is still in the process of being hammered out, but is is coming forward and will give us new powers to deal with projects that are going to have a big impact on on climate change. But then we have a bunch of other policy tools that the government needs to bring to bear to reduce emissions domestically as well. So currently. What policies do we have in place to um, either roll back subsidies, invest in green or renewable energy, or a proper plan with solutions and timelines to mitigate the problem? So Canada, I mean, in 2015, the government who is, again, the government today, uh, you know, came to the Paris Climate Agreement and said, Canada's back and we're going to develop a plan to fight climate change. And they came back and they, they did develop a plan that's called the Pan-Canadian Framework. 
Uh, it's a federal provincial agreement uh, between, you know, the federal government and the provinces, because in a federation like Canada, we have different jurisdictions, different levels of government, have different powers to do different things. Uh, and the government of the day felt we really, really need the provinces on side here. So let's come up with a collaborative agreement, but it included a bunch of policies. Carbon pricing obviously is one of those policies. The federal government said every province needs to have a price on carbon by 2020. And if you don't do it, then we're going to impose our, actually, sorry, by 2018. And if you don't impose it, we'll imp impose our own. We, there is now carbon pricing uh, in, every, in every province in Canada, some of which is, is the federal government system, and some provinces have their own system. Uh, other elements are there's a clean fuel standard, which looks at reducing the emissions intensity of existing fuels like gasoline and diesel. It could deliver, well, 50 megatons, 30 megaton, depends on 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 the math. On the, on the liquid side itself, 30 megatons is what people are hoping it's going to deliver. So it's pretty significant. There's uh, forthcoming regulations around methane use, or sorry, methane emissions from oil and gas facilities. Those are still in negotiation. We have federal regulations. They haven't come into force yet. There's provincial regulations been put forward by BC and Alberta. They're significantly weaker than the federal regulations. So the question is, are the feds going to give the provinces a go, a green light on their weak regulations, or will the federal regulations stand in? There's a commitment to phase out coal-fired electricity. Um, those are really the big policy pieces though, that we have. We've got the price on carbon, the coal phase out, methane emissions from oil and gas, and uh, a clean fuel standard around transportation fuels. Um, there's a few other pieces too that are supposed to come in, but it doesn't get us to meet our commitment that we made in Paris, which is a 30% reduction. Uh, in fact, there were still 80 megatons or so short nationally, and that commitment is nowhere near the the 1.5 degrees that we agreed to in Paris. So there's a bunch of policies. More needs to come. I guess the good news is that Canadians just voted for more climate action in the last election, They've, and the government has promised that they're going to deliver more policies. They're going to increase their ambition from the Paris target, and they've now committed to this new thing around carbon neutrality by 2050, which is 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 a new idea a really powerful idea and an important goal is set for. Okay, lots of questions to go off from there. Um, let's, let, let me start with pointing out some facts. So in a report published on your website, on EDC's website, called Oil, Gas and Climate, it said that the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers project that Canadian crude oil production will increase from 1.27 million bar barrels a day to 5.68 million barrels a day by 2035. That is beyond the 11 years given to us to manage this mm -hmm. magnanimous problem. Okay, number two. Over the next five years, the oil and gas sector intends to invest $1.4 trillion in developing new oil and gas extraction methods that will produce enough emissions that will warm the earth beyond the two degrees Celsius target, let alone 1.5. And we now know, standing in the first month of 2020, that in 2019, the earth has already warmed by 1.2 degrees Celsius, um, starting from the pre-industrial age. And going back to oil and gas extraction methods, 85% of production is slated to come from North America. So my question to you starting is, 
okay, we have all of these policies in place, carbon pricing, something to manage methane, something to manage the intensity of carbon emissions. The real question is that we are building this Trans Mountain Pipeline. The real question is that we are continuing to invest in oil and gas. So it seems to me, again, I go back to greenwashing, like we are not out here for systemic change mm -hmm. to cut back supply because the ramifications from the pipeline from the already in from from the fossil fuel mines already in production from the tech mine that it possibly may be approved yep. we are going to have emissions that will continue for the next many decades so 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 is this just are these just piecemeal solutions to let people remain calm and not create chaos on the streets well as i think the fossil fuel companies the, um that's their vision right that they want to see more production more production and they would argue look if it's not coming from canada it's coming from somewhere else and you don't need to focus on the supply of oil you need to focus on the demand for oil because if it's not from canada it's from you know saudi arabia or venezuela they like to pick these other countries that they think have a worse human rights record than, than canada to make an argument that you know if the world's going to get oil, shouldn't it be Canadian oil? Because for some reason, that's the best oil. <laughs> the argument doesn't hold up. admitted that their future is limited well that's going to have a big impact on their bottom line so but you know where the government is at is it is a bit of a different story the government is definitely committed as we said at the beginning to expanding fossil fuel production to building new infrastructure uh well at the same time fighting climate change in theory they rationalize this uh by saying that there's a cap on oil sands emissions uh in alberta there is legislation that limits the growth of the oil sands to a total of 100 megatons of emissions, but the cap has not been regulated. So it's to say it's not actually in force. It's just an idea. There's nothing, there's no checks and balances. There's nothing to stop things from going above that cap. And in fact, projects have already been approved that would far, far exceed that cap. So there's no way to actually make that thing real. Uh, it so does it's just seem like a joke for like, yeah. it, it feels like they are taking us for a ride when they say, I like that you use the word committed. They are committed to the expansion of oil and gas companies and fossil fuel extraction. And at the same time, they, they say that we are in it to tackle climate change, but it, it, that's a joke. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, we cannot see how it's possible to do both. Uh, already oil and gas production is the largest source of emissions in Canada. It's more, about a quarter of the total emissions. The second largest source of emissions is transportation. All of the cars and trucks and trains uh, and buses and everything on the road is equal to the amount of oil and gas production. And I'm just talking about production. That's the important part here. I'm not talking about the use of those fuels. I'm talking about the pulling out of the ground mm. and the selling and the marketing of the fuels. That's it. 
Um, so it's it's the largest source of emissions. It's the fastest growing source of emissions. If the oil industry gets its way, those emissions will continue to grow. So what else is going to give if we're going to reach our, our reduction target? And are we going to admit that by 2050, we have to have no fossil fuels at all? Like we, we need to reduce emissions from the fossil fuel sector. We need to do it you know, as soon as possible. We, we absolutely cannot continue to let that sector grow. So yeah, there's a dissonance going on here that we haven't been able to reckon with in, in Canada. Uh, I think it's, I mean, I know you want to talk about politics and I think there's a challenge there for politicians. Years ago, and, and I think it was 2016, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau was speaking and said, you know, we're, hey, we're not going to shut down the oil sands, but we do need to phase them out. And he faced such severe political backlash. You know, Twitter just lit up. Everybody was, was you know, calling for his head, basically. And he had to walk it back. And no politician since then has been able to be honest with Canadians that we do need to talk seriously about stopping the uh, growth and production of the fossil industry and figuring out how we're going to transition away from it altogether. It seems to be the political third rail. They, they cannot touch it. I think it's, yeah, I think it's unfair to to Canadians, especially in the West, you know, it, it, it's unfair to not be transparent with them and not tell them that, hey, um, you know, this is the climate justice model that we have in place. Um, you know, kind of talking about a Green New Deal in, 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 in Canada. Um, so of course there will be backlash because ultimately everything depends on, on jobs and, you know, you have to, you have bills to meet. And if the economy that you're dependent on will be washed away, there is bound to be backlash. So I don't want to take away from the lived experiences of people, but at the same time, I think it is up to politicians to make hard decisions. And those hard decisions include being absolutely transparent with your people. You know, what, I don't see any transparency from the government. You cannot, as a liberal government, be saying that I'm committed to climate change and then at the same time be be pumping money into building pipelines. Like, that's just not possible. So a naive question, but I do want to ask you, like, why are we so afraid of saying no to fossil fuel companies? We know that there's always, like, backhand exchanges and you know, games happening behind the curtains. We all know that. Why can't those hands that are currently all fossil fuel companies be exchanged for green ones? Like if we are living in a market, this neoliberal market economy, why can't we talk to renewable pe- people who are in renewable energy sectors? We can. I mean, you know, Canada actually does have a lot of wind and solar power. Ontario had but what I think was a very successful renewable energy program called the Green Energy Act that saw thousands of clean energy projects crop up across this province. Uh, that's all ground, ground to a halt now, unfortunately, with the, the new government who's canceling new projects uh, for no good reason. Uh, in fact, using faulty science to justify it. But you know, the reality is that the oil and gas industry is a, a lot, a very wealthy, a very sophisticated industry. Uh, they, they have this organization, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, but they have a bunch of other front organizations too they spend, we don't even know, millions and millions of dollars lobbying folks in Ottawa all the time. Um, they, I, I can't remember, you might have the report there that we put out, but we, we, you know, we single out the oil and gas industry as the largest impediment to climate action in Canada. And it's not just because their emissions are growing so quickly, it's because they bring a serious lobby power to Ottawa and they work through all of their channels to obstruct the passage of any climate policy. They got involved in this 
Bill C-69, which is this new regulatory process for approving high or not approving high carbon projects. They delayed the clean fuel standard. They got Alberta to pass weak methane regulations, which is the only regulation dealing with oil and gas emissions. Uh, they fight every, they fight carbon pricing. They fight every single piece of climate policy tooth and nail. They outgun the environmental sector by 10 to one or a hundred to one. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're blocking us. And so pine politicians, you know, they, they, they feel that power and, and, you know, a lot of the politicians come from a business sector too. So they feel the importance of fossil fuels in the Canadian economy. It used to be a really big part of the, the TSX, like of the, the, the stock exchange, it's a much smaller part now because the industry has shrunk dramatically since 2014, really. But people still feel like it's such an important part of our economy, and that's hard for people for them to overcome. And then there's the reality that there are real people who rely on those jobs and those economic opportunities who are going to be impacted. And you know, when the government committed to phasing out coal, there's people that mine coal, that work in coal-fired power plants, who are going to lose their jobs. Uh, and and that's a tough pill to swallow and the government's been trying to work on what they call the just transition task force and they went around and talked to coal workers and had a lot of tough conversations i think they're really worried about the conversations that we need to have with people who are reliant upon the oil and gas industry but i think what's an important point is that this transition is coming whether we like it or not uh we we the world is responding to climate change not just canada uh, our oil is expensive and high carbon and it's going to get knocked out of the market so are we going to get out in front of this and plan for it and plan for those workers and plan for those communities to figure out what our new economy looks like? Or are we just going to kind of stick our head in the sand and let this disaster kind of, you know, smash upon us like we did when the cod fishery collapsed or when the forest industry collapsed or when so many other things have happened? I mean, are we just going to sit here and let this happen to, to, to workers in the communities? Or are we going to be honest that change is coming and we want to get out in front of it? I mean, that's what yeah. we've been advocating. You say responding, but are are we responding as global leaders? And you know, I was I was watching a lot of videos of the World Economic Forum in Davos, and you know, young climate climate leaders have have asked, like, is this you know, last year, for example, Greta Thunberg came and said, oh, our house is on fire, and we're acting like it's not, and then this year she said nothing has changed. I wonder, are we, are we responding, you know, or, or are we, again, are we just greenwashing? I was so surprised to learn that Google, Microsoft, Amazon have committed artificial intelligence technology to companies like Exxon and BP and Shell to help them e extract more efficiently. Yeah, but some of those companies have also committed uh, to 100% renewable energy for their own operations. So yeah, but exactly. I, I agree. I mean, there's some dissonance going on um, have we, have we put out the fire? No. Have we acknowledged that the house is on fire? No, not yet. But are we making some progress? We absolutely are. I mean, it's important to understand. I mean, this is Canada's first time that we've ever had a real national climate strategy. What we've had in the past is governments of all stripes going and signing international accords like Kyoto uh, and, and others, and then actually doing nothing domestically to follow through on those. And then, you know, laying the blame at somebody else's feet when the clock ticks down and we say, oh, geez, we just missed another target, another goal. But everybody was doing that. Everyone was just saying, yes, yes, I care, but then not doing anything about it. Well, now we're doing something about it. Are we doing enough? Not by a long shot. We need to do more. But I think we should recognize the progress that is taking place. And we're going to keep pushing on this cognitive dissonance, this, this idea that we haven't yet swallowed here in Canada, that we cannot, 
grow oil and gas production. We cannot continue to rely on that industry uh, and, and exceed the emissions grow in that industry while simultaneously fighting climate change. That's the, the real nut that we have to crack and that, and that we can't even do it. Politicians can't even do it like rhetorically yet. They can't even mm -hmm. say those words, let alone pass policies to bring it into effect. And I think it's important to understand too, that if, it's a hard job, I think, being a politician. And if you if you make a mistake, if you go too far and you get out in front of the public and you do something that's unpopular, you get punished at the polls. And whatever you do, it can get undone pretty quickly. I don't want to say that uh, Ontario's cap and trade program was unpopular, as I don't think it was actually. But it's an example of them. When we had actually really good climate policy here in Ontario, and it all got undone, you know, with the snap of fingers when we elected a new government here in Ontario. And so I just think it's important that politicians need to be, they need to lead, but they also need to be situated within what the public really wants. Uh, and they can't be too far out in front or they're going to get punished and it's going to get undone. Same thing happened in Alberta, right? Mm. Alberta didn't have great climate policy, but it had pretty good climate policy for an oil producing jurisdiction. Not lead, got kicked out and everything that she did was undone. I'm glad that you brought in the idea of how tough it is to be a politician. And I think I want to ask you a super basic question. Of course, it's going off of what Greta Thunberg said in one of her speeches. And also, um, as someone who is still fairly young, you know, I have a lot of conversations with my peers and we often end up saying, ah, oh, politicians are going to do nothing. Like there's no hope, blah, blah, blah. So in one of her speeches, she said, entire ecosystems are collapsing and people are dying. And all you can do is talk about money and fairy tales. I refuse to believe that you are evil. So I want to ask you this very question, super basic. Do you think politicians are evil? No, I don't think they are, no. Uh, I, think, I think it's a hard job. I think it takes a particular kind of person to be successful at politics. Uh, it takes somebody with a pretty big ego usually, somebody that's probably fairly ruthless, um, because these days politicians, you know, really don't have much of an opportunity to stand with their convictions what they're going to do is is going to do what their party tells them is you know popular with their voter base uh what's going to get them more seats or back into power or whatever that it is uh and so i think that's that's a tough bind that politicians are in uh and there are there are some there are a few politicians that really do have strong convictions and do kind of wear their heart on their sleeve and and work hard out there every day but sometimes when somebody does that, they get punished. I mean, I, I think Jody Wilson-Raybould is an example of somebody who took a principled stand. Uh, you know, whether you like her or not, didn't like what she did. The point is, she got punished for what she did, and now and so so you can't you can't you can't be your yourself, your authentic self, and when you're a politician, and I think that's something that people should recognize. But I think it's a really important job. It's a really important thing that we have, and I I would say I understand why people are disenfranchised with the political system, but I would encourage the response to, to that, not to unplug or to go do something else, but to really engage, to actually step forward and get involved in the political process. Uh, and let's create a movement that gets politicians to be better and to be accountable for what youth want in particular, you know, around fighting climate change or what most Canadians want around fighting climate change and, and dealing with other progressive issues. Um, yeah, I think in the last federal election in 2019, I think we showed politicians that you cannot win if you don't have a firm climate mitigating poli policies in place. I think I think we we kind of showed them that. Yeah. Um, 
So this is, so the next three to four years, two to four years, let's say, because we have, um, we don't know how long this government will last. Um, but let's say that people are now, you know, especially young people have their eyes open because they're so actively involved in making sure that governments respond and give them solutions. If we don't see any, you know, firm solutions coming out of Ottawa, how do you think, um, how do you think this will threaten political order? Because I think 2020 will be the year that we need to see some actions in place. Otherwise, it's going to be business as usual for for the next, you know, 11 years until we are two degrees warmer. Yeah, I don't think it'll be business as usual. I think we'll continue to see more catastrophes like yes. what we're seeing in, you know, Australia and whatnot and see this these disasters unfold before our eyes and maybe we'll lose hope. And I think that would be a real tragic outcome. But I think, yeah, what should the youth do? I mean, I don't know yet what the youth voter turnout was in the 2019 election. I know that uh, if you look at the polling, uh, millennials care more about climate change and are more concerned about climate change and other progressive issues than our older Canadians typically. Uh, the youth also tend to vote less, unfortunately, though. Um, despite the fact that millennials now are the largest demographic in Canada, right? Bigger than the boomers. So there's, a, there's the ability for millennials to create a political constituency that cannot be ignored, but they have to get organized and, and they have to turn out and, and get involved in political processes, which is why I'm saying you can lean forward, step in, whatever it is, get involved in, in politics and political processes and push for, for the changes that you know, you want to see and hold governments accountable for making those changes happen and bring the urgency to it as as well. Uh, and there's lots of ways that folks can get involved. Uh, but I would say start by joining, you know, with other groups that are already pursuing this work. I mean, Fridays for the Future, a great movement. Uh, there's, you know, you can find people with common cause there. Uh, you could get involved with a group like Environmental Defense or, if, or you can get involved with, you know, Dave Suzuki Foundation, any number of environmental organizations that are working in Canada uh, to try to bring about progressive change. And they'll offer opportunities for political engagement where we can push our politicians together to take serious action on do these issues. Do you see a collaboration between politicians, people in government, and young and young activists? Do you see a collaboration taking place to, to offer real solutions, not piecemeals? I, I don't yet see that, no. Um, but I'd like to see that. I think. Uh, how do you think one can be like, how do you see that being possible? Well, I mean, we try to engage in the uh, political process. And so we'll do various things like, uh, you know, we send letters to elected officials. We'll, we send petitions to elected officials. We'll go to meetings with elected officials. Uh, we'll, we'll try to phone people. We'll write op-eds in the newspaper. We'll produce reports that get media coverage. We'll do all those kind of things to try to get people to be aware of what's going on and for politicians to hear that they need to take action. And there's strength in numbers in the democracy. So what can folks do? I mean, get a petition going and show that, you know, if, if, if a million Canadians went out and marched uh, as part of the, the, the climate strikes, I mean, those million Canadians are big political constituencies. So can we get a million Canadians to sign a petition telling the government uh, that they want I don't know, pick what it is, pick three things, no more fossil fuel development that we want, uh, um, you know, 
our new climate uh, budget that shows us how we're going to get to carbon neutrality by 2050. And we want, I don't know, pick another piece, like some, I, right now there's a new bill that's talking about climate accountability, but we could choose that we really want a just transition. We want to make sure that no one's left behind, like in the Green New Deal, something like that. But I mean, I think people need to get organized. They need to come together on a shared ask, show that strength in numbers and, and, and put the pressure on politicians, tell them what you want and hold them to account for it. They'll have to respond. Great. On that note, Keith, I do want to thank you for coming on the Nth Dimension and having some real climate change talk with me. My pleasure. Um, the planet has a fever and that is only the symptom. I don't think that the government and politicians across the world are doing enough to change the system that has caused our wonderful planet to, to be devastated. Having said that, I think every individual action counts and every action that we do take has an impact. So like Keith said, let's get together, organize and push our governments and politicians across the world to stop the environment from getting further devastated.